Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel. Martin Daubney, who's the deputy leader of the Reclaim Party and former Brexit MEP. James Woodhausen, who's the visiting professor at London South Bank University. And Rabina Khan, a former Liberal Democrat advisor. New face, good evening, welcome to you. Always love a new face, don't we, here on Jubes and Co. And you know the drill on this show, it's not just about us here, it's about you at home as well. What are your thoughts today? You can get in touch with me, email gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, download our app. Uh, we're everywhere, quite frankly, aren't we? Many of you have already been in touch off the uh, headlines there. You're not messing around tonight. You're very quick off the mark. That Lenny Henry story uh, in the headlines then has got a lot of you talking, uh, asking pretty much, why do we have to make everything about colour? I have to say, I completely agree with you. Um, many of you talking already about the uh, food picking uh, situation. We'll be coming on to that a little bit later on in the show. Tessa says, I don't understand why the farm stopped doing free holidays for people who wanted to pick food. She says they were extremely popular back in the day and I got a free working holiday, which you got paid for the amount you picked. So why don't we go back to those days? I'm intrigued, Tessa. Where was your holiday? Was it on the farm that you... Um, Pick, just, I, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious, I genuinely don't know how that worked and I'm fascinated. Where did you get sent on your holiday? I want to know uh, the answer to that. Ian uh, has got in, all, in touch already asking about last night's show. Did you watch that one? Crikey, there's still a lot of conversation uh, about that one. I've got to say, some of you saying it was quite hard to hear some of the conversation last night. I watched that show back today and I have to say, I completely agree with you. Sometimes it does feel a bit different in the studio to what you see on the TV or listen to the radio. So if any of you struggled to hear some of that debate last night, I do apologise for that. Um, I'm going to do my best impression of John Becker next time that happens. Order a wooden ha hammer. I'll be banging the table. I'll have none of it. I'll warn these three. If you're any shouting over each other, you're out the door. That'll be my new rule. Uh, so if you did struggle with any of that last night, I do apologise. Uh, and sometimes we just get passionate, don't we, about what we're talking about. Um, we are only human after all. Right, let's get on to our top story tonight, shall we? We're pretty good at growing food in the UK. As we've just been hearing Tessa uh, was doing it back in the day. Um, but here's the problem. Whilst it's great that we might produce about 60% of the food that we do eat, we have a bit of a problem with getting that food to the table because there is a lack of people willing to do that work in the food industry. The government has now had to issue 10,000 visas to get more people into picking fruit and veg and work in the poultry sector. I've got to say, Martin, when I think back to the whole Brexit situation, yep. one of, certainly not the only one, but one of the key uh, veins that was running through that conversation often was around uh, low-cost foreign labour. People yep. would say kind of people were exploiting that, putting local work as a, a disadvantage. That was one of the drivers for many people in mm -hmm. Brexit. And here we are now, and people don't want to do those jobs. What's the answer to all this? Well, it feels like Groundhog Day again, doesn't it? You're right to say that the, the Brexit debate was dominated by food sovereignty, paying fair wages for a fair day's work. That used to be a position of the political left, now my, my old political heartland. But what's happened, of course, is that we have become addicted over the years to imported cheap foreign labour, especially 
in the farming sector. The National Farmers Union is entirely reliant. And we look at the wages they get. And they are encouraged to stay in caravans, on site. Now, I've spent time in these places, on these farms, speaking to workers, speaking to locals. They can't afford to do that work. It's not a case that they don't want to do that work. Wage suppression is totally real in the fruit picking sector. Now, what they should do is increase wages. We should, be, we should be food sovereign. We should be less reliant on importing food from halfway around the world. Now, all, all, all the liberals who want their avocados from Mexico, what about the carbon footprint of that? What about sustainability? Let's go local, but let's pay a fair wage. What do let's you call a fair wage? Well, it's a minimum wage job, but at present, if you issue visas for workers to come in, they have to stay on site in caravans and pay that to the farm. So it's less than minimum wage. It's actually a form of slave labour. Now, the farmers are dependent on that. That cycle needs to be broken, and we need to pay Britons a fair salary for a fair day's work. That, to me, seems eminently fair. Rubina? So that's going to solve the problem. I mean, I'm, and the reason I bring this in, Michelle, is because um, as a young person, when I was grow growing up in Kent, I used to remember when I was 16, we went fruit picking. That was our Saturday mm. job. We went fruit picking. My family, my sisters, um, friends, we went fruit picking because we had that additional money coming in. But there was something very important Michelle said right at the beginning, and it was about, do we have a workforce that wants to go fruit picking? Do we have a workforce in this country that will go out fruit picking? And years ago, I mean, in the East End, if you remember, hop farmers and hop picking, yeah. they went to Kent. It was their holiday vacation from the East End to Kent. Um, and, they, and they did that it was part of um, earning money, but being out of London as well. Can we go back to that way of culture? Can we understand how we can encourage people to go out and fruit pick? Because sometimes I think it's not just about the wages. I agree with you about the wages, making sure that people have a good wage by which they can go out and fruit pick and earn that money. But do we have the workforce, that motivation to go out? But obviously the answer is no, or else we wouldn't have to have these visas. And I agree with what you're saying, because I remember my siblings up in Hull, and they used to do fruit picking. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the minibus used to come, and it used to pick them all up, and off they'd go. Yeah. And I was really lucky, because I dodged it. I got a job in the kitchen of the local pub. I wasn't old enough to go behind the bar, oh, so yeah, I was happy. <laughs> but these days, James, I mean, we're all... It's all well and good sitting here and talking about, you know, the younger people used to do this as a Saturday job and an evening job. If I went up to a lot of young people now, I says, right, you, my friend, I've got a job advert here, for example, £9.50 an hour. Magic. You've got to, you've got to work uh, normal start 7am. You've got to work six to eight hours a day. And as I say, it'd be £9.50 an hour. So I imagine if I went to a lot of young people and said, do you want to do this? They're going to laugh in my face because, no, they don't want to do that. They want to go in their bedrooms on their Instagram and their TikToks and become famous. Well, I quite agree. We can't be nostalgic about this. And I also agree with uh, Martin that we, we do need higher wages, no doubt about that. Um, I think, for me, you know, since I forecast innovation and technology, what strikes me about food in this country is that psychology completely dominates the discussion to the detriment of technology. So, you know, it's all about pesticides, animals, CO2, obesity, diet, vegan, and even Martin indulged it a bit with your hostility to avocado miles yeah. uh, there, Martin. Well, you know, for me, what we don't discuss is whether precision agriculture, which uses satellites to detect and transmit information about the moisture in raspberries, we're not talking about using precision agriculture so that we can 
water and pick plants and horticulture faster and we can get around the labour shortages that way. We're not talking about the new raspberry picking robots that have got 50% efficiency. The whole discussion is all about, you know, our stomachs, are we too fat? Uh, what about the additives and all of that? It's so boring. We could be making a high-tech industry with better jobs, better jobs, not backbreaking. Well, well hang on, because the, the, the trouble with mechanisation is that you would do away with all of those jobs. No, doesn't that, follow. That's, that's already happened. We've seen that with, with so during the pandemic. We've seen this kind of rush towards mechanisation. No, we didn't. No, we have, in, in, in Italy, where also, by the way, they, they have shortages of crop because it's, is it Brexit in, in Italy? The answer is not a Brexit thing. It's a pay thing and it's about workers getting into different sectors during pandemic. But I think we need to be really sort of clear-headed about this. I think, you know, we're going to see an awful lot of, of jobs automated away from the working classes, the low-skilled. You know, and, I, and I, I wish I, you were I, right, Martin. My side is, I mean, if you remember, five or ten years ago, we were told that, uh, you know, robots would take half of our jobs. What, what's really apparent in British industry, including agriculture, is the underinvestment in IT, underinvestment in mechanisation. If we did it right, we could preserve and make better jobs. In Whose job should it be to do this technological innovation? Well, it's partly entrepreneurs and, you know, the private sector. No problem with that. Uh, but it also, you know, is part of the, the government's job to look at long-term research and development. We're not there yet with raspberry picking. I just had a look at it, uh, Michelle. The US government is sponsoring artificial intelligence, AgAid, as it's called, or ag, ag, yeah, AgAid, agricultural AI, to the tune of, guess what, in the United States, right, we're looking nearly Ukraine in terms of agriculture, 20 million bucks, that's what the capitalists want to invest yeah. in mechanisation and AI in, you know, Dakota, Arizona, or anywhere else that they do stuff with, uh, you know, food think, or whatever. Back, back, in, back in the UK, I think we have another problem and that is people are so used to getting paid to not work. And I think we're seeing this intensify during the pandemic with furlough. And I think we, we have an issue of young people thinking it's not worth my time. I don't want to get out of bed through these sort of jobs because it's easier to go on, on, on the benef onto benefits and the dole. I would like to see in these areas people incentivise to have benefits and the government top up to go and do a job. Because when people work, they get more than just the money. They get self-belief, they get self-worth and they contribute and they make friends and they humanise. Oh, we no, no, I, I disagree with you about young people not wanting to work. I see lots of young people wanting to work. They want to work. They not have these sort of opportunities. But I disagree with the way you, you know, perceive perception about young people not working. There is he a didn't say of, young people. No. Uh, that was probably me being a bit no, so people, oh, it's about the about, Somebody around here is a curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah, it's about... No but Martin's point, and I have to say, Martin, as you're talking, I've got a similar um, thought process coming in my inbox, which is people say, well, hang on, how can people be receiving benefits to stay at home and not work when we've got a situation in this country such as this one? Yeah. yeah. What would you say back to that? Are we de-incentivising work? Are we a bit too generous with the benefit system? No, we're not. We're not being um, generous uh, with the benefit system. But I've got people on universal credit who have often been left without money. Um, recently, I wrote an article um, for the National one. It was about a really good fr friend of mine who I know, Rachel. And she is a mum who's, who's got cancer and her um, son is severely disabled. And they are facing the cost of living. She's actually deciding whether or not she's going to turn the light on and which room she's going to have the heating on when it comes um, as winter approaches. And we don't have a country that's prepared to understand the consequences on families who are suffering and who are having to deal with this. And when I think of her situation, I think about something else. There's a fact that's come out. There are 800,000 unfulfilled jobs in this country. Hmm. 
Why? Why do we have these jobs that are not being able to field by people in this country? Is it a case that they don't have skills? Is it a case of motivation? What is it? And just on the other point about automated jobs and artificial, in artificial intelligence, just as we have to invest in automated jobs and artificial intelligence, we also have to prepare a country to, be, to understand how to access those jobs. Um, and I say this again because I often work with young people and youth um, projects, and there have been mums who've come to me and said, Do you know, there was a time when I could send my young um, son or child over or, or daughter to get a job in Tesco's or one of the supermarkets, but then you get these self-checkouts. Yes, don't tell me. I used to be a checkout girl. Oh, you see, yes. you've had a lot of yeah. jobs. Uh, well, I used to have three, you see, I used to actually have three jobs in one day when I was a teenager. I used to get up, I used to go to Quick Save, it was called. I used to go to a shift in Quick Save. Then I used to go do a shift in the pub kitchen. And then I used to go and do babysitting on the night. That was, that was a Saturday. And then Monday to Friday, I had to go work, I had to go to work after school because I had to pay a board when I was a teenager. But so I don't, suppose, I don't suggest that you have to. You had the opportunity. What we have to remember as we invest into artificial intelligence, into automated jobs, we also have to prepare a workforce of young people to understand how to access it. Where is that investment? How are we doing it? Because I don't see it at the moment. But then when you say the workforce, like how do people access these things? For example, in prep for this conversation, um, I just did a little bit of, uh, it took me two seconds to try and get a hold of some of these jobs, see what they pay. It's not difficult to find work. And about your friend Rachel, I mean, it sounds awful, her situation. It's heartbreaking from what you describe. I don't think anyone with a straight face would sit there and say, you're a mum that's got cancer, caring for a disabled child, never mind that, go pick some apples. I don't think anyone with a straight face yeah. would say that. And we absolutely, I think, should have a welfare state that properly cares for people like your friend that really genuinely need help and support. But I guess the sentiment that we're saying here is that there are a, a segment of society that are quite work shy that will sit there and go, well, actually, you know, I can get a home. I can get some pocket money. I don't really need to go out and work. And it's about how do you find those people, target those people and incentivize and motivate those people. There's a few suggestions. Uh, you guys are quite entrepreneurial in your thinking, um, David. He's not messing around. He's saying the solution to all of this is to put all school leavers into what is like a year's community service that, could include, that would include them crop picking before they're allowed to go to university. It would teach them about food production, which schools currently don't. I've got to say, David, I think you might have something on there in terms of food chains and something like that, because I think a lot of people don't understand food chains, production, how it all works. And I think there's an awful lot of wastage uh, in this country that perhaps could be avoided. Um, people are saying, what about people on community service? Why don't you get those people out um, doing work, etc.? Why are there people that are not contributing to society that are able to contribute to society? And that is something that's coming through thick and fast as well. Um, Brexit, Keith says, Brexit wasn't about who comes into this country. It was about control, having control to be able to determine what you do and don't do. I think Keith is basically saying there, if you need to create your visas then because you've got a shortage, well, so be it. Um, but that's, that's no long-term solution. No. You know, if, if we want high productivity mm. agriculture, decent jobs... I'm taking not so much the access, Rabina, but the, the training for robotised jobs, the training in software, you know, the understanding of 
all the difficulties that IT brings, which is quite considerable, right? We're, we're a long way off, but that has to be the medium to long-term plan for agriculture in this country, along with everything else, gene editing, use of CRISPR enzymes and so on to make more tasty tomatoes. Thank you very much. On, 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 a, on a fundamental basis of democracy, you know, in, the, in 2016 and in every election since, we voted to take back control of our borders and, and to encourage British people to, to, to get more work. And the, the reliance on, on visas to bring in overseas workers every time there's a shortfall is a betrayal of those votes. Band-Aid. And, it's, and it's, not what the Brit- it's not what the British public voted for at every election since 2016. So let me ask you... Go on, sorry, no, I was Rubina. just going to just add, it appears it's quite easy to put out slogans like take back control, but in reality it seems to be a lot harder than what the um, government promised. But the same shortages are occurring across Europe and across America. It's not a Brexit issue. That's that, I think that's, with all respect, so that's, a, that's a lazy comparison. This is, a, this is a, a redistribution of where people live after the pandemic. Uh, we're exposed to reliance on, on imports. The globalists have been exposed. Their reliance on importation labor, of labour and importing food has been cruelly exposed as the problem. We should have a British-based solution. There's lots of ways we could have done that with the, with the grants we gave to the European Union, billions of pounds every month. We, we could incentivise these jobs. We should pay agriculture to, to be more productive. We should, we should support a Buy British campaign. But we're not going to get autarky, Martin. I mean, it's a bit like energy independence. You know, do we need more energy or agricultural security? Yes. Are we going to get completely independent from the world market for avocados? Well, we don't want to be because, you know, no. yeah, but we could encourage seasonal buying. No, no, it's all right. Well, growing, yeah, as long as know. it doesn't get po-faced, you know, yeah. that you can only buy local, it must be seasonal and all of that moral stuff. I hate all that. Mm. Uh, let me leave this conversation with a question to you, viewers and listeners. We've just been talking there about, you know, I've just pulled out some job adverts there, £9.50 an hour was the salary for some of those starting at 9 at 7am in the morning. Uh, you know, we're all well and good talking about we'll pay these jobs uh, higher wages then. So let me leave you with this question. Would you be prepared to pay more for your fruit, your veg or whatever, your poultry, if it meant that people were getting a higher wage? Because it's all well and good saying pay them more, but, you know, these people, the farm owners, etc., they're not just going to absorb that cost out of the goodness of their heart. They're going to pass it on to you, the consumers. So tell me, would you be prepared to pay more if it meant that the people doing the job were paid better? Fascinating to know your answers on that one. Right, let's uh, going to take a quick break. When we come back, Whitby has become the latest place in the UK to vote against second home ownership. What do we think to that? Is this even going to fix anything to do with the housing crisis? Is it politics of envy? What's going on? And where do you stand on it? Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel, Martin Daubney, who's the deputy leader of the Reclaim Party and former Brexit MEP, James Woodhausen, who's a visiting professor at London South Bank University, and Rabina Khan, who's a former Liberal Democrat advisor. Good evening to you three. Now let's talk housing, shall we? Because by now we all know that there's a housing crisis in this country. So what is the answer to this? Well, there's a lot of people up in arms at the moment about people that have second um, homes, isn't there? What is the answer to this? Do we think that banning people from having second homes would help kind of ease the situation that we're in? That's what the residents of Whitby think. After all, they've voted to demand that all new homes are sold only to people who intend to make it their primary residence. Um, this is fascinating. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Whitby. It's a lovely place. Uh, 
up north. I mean, there'll be some people saying it's not north, but to me it is. It's kind of near Scarborough. Uh, if you've ever been around there, it's a very nice part of the world, I have to say. Um, just over three uh, quarters of a million people in the UK are reported to have second homes. Um, although some of them apparently might have more than one. I'm just showing you, Whitby. Look at that beautiful. If you're listening, uh, not watching, we're showing you uh, Whitby in its beauty. It's a stunning place and somewhere that absolutely, if you haven't visited, you really ought to. Uh, I'll start with you, Rabina. Used to be, uh, this used to be your policy, didn't it? The housing policy. This was your area of expertise. What's your thoughts on it? Well, um, today, I, I think the first thing before I begin, I just want to remember five years on from Grenfell, the 70 yeah, absolutely, who died and perished in that fire. And it's a moment of reflection for this country on where we are on our housing crisis. And in some ways, when I read about this story, and I just think, you know... This is Grenfell, the, of course, that's on the screen in yeah, case you're wondering. Yeah, power to the people of Whitby for taking a stand on what they want to do or how to ensure that people get to access homes, get to... Um, purchase their own homes but there is a double-edged sword here because on one way they've included it in their local plan which is part of the planning um, strategic planning committee who'd have to consider any planning application but at the same time when you're trying to ensure that people aren't able to purchase the second homes it means that you are going to be devaluing other homes around so there may be someone there who's purchased a home and wants to sell their property which means that they might not be able to in the future get a buyer to purchase that property unless of course they sell it on to someone else in Whitby um, and I think what this is telling us is the fact that there are people who were taking a stand to protect their communities to protect um, the young people more than likely you know young people who want to purchase their homes and also to make sure that they protect their environment that they're living in. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't build homes. We build homes going into the future. We build homes to make sure that they're built in an innovative way. And one of the things that I think that's coming out of this is whilst we keep talking about building more and more homes, what we are not talking about is building safer homes. And the reason I bring this up is that we're not talking about the planning process. The planning process can be quite complex. But the one thing that this government should be really looking at is making our homes safer. Did you know that when you build high-rise residential properties, you, are, you need to have two stairwells? But if you build high-rise, sorry, if you build high-rise office space, you need two stairwells. But if you build high-rise residentials, you only need one stairwell. What's the reasoning for that? The reasoning is because the coding, the planning code stipulates that you have to uh, if you build high-rise office, um, an office um, block you have to have two stairwells but if you build a high-rise residential property you have to have only one now where do you spend most of your time you spend most of your time in your home if you purchase a property in a high-rise residential well property. i was not aware of that and i have to concede that sounds pretty bonkers uh, to me martin if i think if i bring this back to the second home in whitby situation yeah. uh rabina is then saying that people in whitby are taking a stand they're protecting you know their area their yeah. environment their homes for you know their their locals which is all well and good, and I understand to some point, but surely these people must have been selling their properties to these second homeowners in the first place. And the bit that I worry about this is all well and good taking stands and doing referendums and voting for this, that and the other. But if on the, if on the other hand, someone turns around to you and says, you know, I'll give you X for your house and you go, oh, yeah, OK, then. People are often motivated by getting the highest price for their own property yeah. that they can. Of course. Um, firstly, I'd like to say it's, it's great to meet a, a Liberal Democrat who'd like to honour the results of a referendum. I've met many of those over the, the past seven years. 95% of people in Whitby voted for this. 
because they're, they're being priced out of the, of the property market. Now, of course, it's not kicking people out who are already there. It is new homes. Mm. But I think there's a huge problem. First of all, property developers tend to be grasping capitalist so-and-sos and they tend to like buy, building houses in areas where they can get the maximum return. So I worry that um, this will just shift it onto other areas and they'll just build second homes for, for outsiders there. That's the first problem. I do like the idea, however, of, devol of devolution in terms of people power. And I would like to see a similar boat in Linton-on-Ouse in North Yorkshire, which at the moment is the subject, the unlikely and unwanting recipient of an immigration centre, an asylum seeker centre on the, on the airbase. I was there last week. I spent the whole day with residents. They don't want this. They weren't consulted. They were never asked. So if we're talking about major developments having a local referendum and a voice, that's a good thing. But you can't just make it about nimbyism. Market forces are market forces. Yeah. And it's the same in London. It's the same in, in Nottingham, where I'm from. There's a 20% hike in, in prices in Nottingham. People have been priced out of the property market all over the shop. It's not just in Whitby. And that's because there's a, there's a supply and demand problem. Um, and a part of that, I'm afraid, is the fact we're importing a million people a year um, and not building enough housing for them. And so the rents are going up and the prices are going up. And meanwhile, the rich hoover up second homes. The ha housing market is broken. It really, really is. James? Well, uh, I wrote a book called Why is Construction So Backward? Uh, back in 2004. You're a man of many talents, aren't yes. you, James? Well, it, did, it didn't mean that it was any good, Michelle, but it did get <laughs> me a threatening phone call from John Prescott, so it can't have been all bad. Um, but uh, I think Martin's on to it. The, the real problem is that, as you said, Michelle, there's 750,000 second homes in this country. There are 35 million households in this country or something like that. So uh, beyond Whitby, which I'm sure has been ill-treated, uh, just like um, your delightful northern town up north, uh, Martin. Beyond that, you know, second homes are not the problem facing this country as far as housing is concerned. Right? The, we need 750,000 new homes built per year to catch up with a shocking deficit that, in fact, preceded the COVID crisis and has broken all the Tories' promises and all Labour's promises before that. We need a lot more high-quality, high-safety homes and that's the beginning and the end of the matter. So until we do that, and there's two ways to do that, Michelle. The first is to deregulate the land, to yeah. stop the state having a monopoly on you putting up a conservatory, you buying a piece of land and building on it. And the second thing we need to do is we need to mechanize the production process for this. So we're manufacturing homes which are fully insulated, that have the right central heating put in, that have a solar panel, if you must, built in in the factory, not in the rain. Very similar to agriculture. Yeah. We're not having that discussion. And the robots are there. Much easier to do it for houses than it is for raspberries. Mm. Um, I found this one interesting. Chris has emailed in saying, Michelle, We've got a family holiday business in Whitby. We've got two townhouses that we now let for holiday accommodation. I was alarmed to hear Scarborough Council are considering this ban on holiday homes. He goes on to say his business spends over £40,000 in the local economy and our guests will more than double that. The council needs to be careful because the holiday business provides jobs and income for the town. 
What do we think to this? Are they cutting their nose off despite their fears, James? Well, you know, Martin's right. I mean, uh, you know, I'm on the left like Martin and we're not the same on everything, but the market is the market, you know. And welcome to capitalist housing market. Yeah. It's horrible. You can't get a house where you can swing a cat. You know, uh, it's impossible for young people. The bank of mom and dad is broke. These are the major problems everywhere around the country. And therefore, you know, uh, the, I think it's quite fair that, you know, people may not occupy these homes, that rankles, just as foreign ownership of London homes, empty homes rankles. But is it is it the problem or is it a pimple uh, when the real problem is, mu you know, much deeper and much more long lasting, where we need ambitious, radical technological thinking? Private sector, public sector, I don't mind as long as we can house the kids. Yeah, and I've got to say, I think this sense as well, I've never really quite understood why haven't we got a hold of um, people, especially, like you say, it's a thing in London, but I think it's a, a thing in bigger cities, where you've got foreign investors that are often buying off-plan, yeah. new developments, so you're getting all these new developments, so you see your cranes up everywhere, you see all these buildings popping up, and that's great, so you think, oh yeah, look at all those apartments being built. But then when you wander around and on the night, so many yeah. of these apartments, they're pitch black, because there's no one living in there, they've been held as assets for appreciation values from foreign investors. And that is the kind of thing that we re really, we should be stamping it out, actually, because you shouldn't be able to live in a completely different country and have a flat here, there and everywhere, empty, just for it to yeah. add to your balance sheet. I just, um, you can? I said um, about it's a double-edged sword. It is a double-edged sword. What this community have done is put out their response, that they are fed up, they want to make sure their children, their grandchildren are able to access homes. They want their children to be able to purchase homes. They want to make sure that the homes that they have, it's going to local people. When the new builds happen on a new regeneration estate, that it goes to local people. That's what they want. And when I said that I, I understand where it's coming from, their second homes, what, they, what, they're, what they're telling the government is you've messed it up on the housing um, situation here. You're not being able to deliver. You're not doing the things that we want you to do. We only have to look at the way leaseholders have been charged with the building safety bills that they, they face all the time because of Grenfell. This government has at last finally decided that maybe the leasehold system in this country needs to be abolished and we need to move to common hold. Yeah, All of be... this is part of the housing crisis have, have... and the way we approach it. I think you've got to be very big... that the government has you've failed. Be, you've got to be really careful about who's allowed to live where and when the state pokes its nose in. Like, it's dangerous you get towards Corbynomics, like you're not allowed to sell to um, oligarchs, you're not allowed to sell to the Chinese in London. Um, we're, not, we're now not allowed to sell to wealthy Londoners in Whitby by order of state decree. Well, where does that stop? Could you say, for example, I live in Linton on News and I don't want immigrants to move in? I mean, how will that go down? That will go down like a lead balloon. So the point is, it's the same thing. We either believe in state control of property or we believe in the free market. And if we, if we can agree that neither is perfect, then we just need to build more housing. We're <laughs> arguing over, over, over a, a depleted stock that's massively, in, in a, in a, it's massively oversubscribed because it doesn't exist. And I think state intervention about who's allowed to live where is a dangerous thing. Yeah. Uh, Rabina, I've got to say as well, I think that the government has got a lot of things wrong. Don't get me wrong, I don't think they're perfect to everything. But I also do find that the tendency to say, oh, the government, it's the government's fault, this and that and the other. Because I also think that in this country, we almost see home ownership. It's our pension, it's our kind of, yes, look at how much money I've made on my house, look at how much equity I've got in my house, etc., etc. You'll often see gazumping. Uh, and the homeowner will be sitting there holding out for the highest price possible. Mm. And I do just kind of think that it's not all Boris Johnson's fault 
that we're in the situation that Certainly we're in. Not. I think that people, we have personal responsibility. Someone could sit there and say, I live in Whitby or wherever, Cornwall, wherever it is. I own this house, you know, that fella there, he's from wherever, he wants it as a holiday let. He's offering me another 10 grand, but no, my principles mm. are more important than money. I'm going to sell it to that family there that are from this area. I'll take a 10 grand hit. And I wonder how many people, actually, if you're honest with yourselves, if you had two people offering you on your house, it's all well and good. We all like the sound of being nice, decent people, don't we? We all want our kids and our grandkids to get in the house. But if someone came to you with an offer for a property, one, one was 10 grand more than the other, but it was a second homeowner, tell me the truth. What would you do? Would you sit there and say, not for me? My principles before my pounds. I'm going to keep it for the local family, take 10 grand here. Or would you go, yeah, no one's watching. I'm going to sell it to him for an extra 10 grand. Let me know your thoughts on that. Julie has been in touch saying, Michelle, I love Rabina. I think she's great <laughs> and I hope she will be a regular. Yeah. Uh, Steve says, let people have second homes, Michelle, but charge them £50 a night, empty home tax for every single night that Whoa. it's empty. Yeah. Um, mm. Gary says, look at this from a different angle. Let's try and build new homes for the elderly. Yes. They can then move out there. Uh, they can move out there, three up, two down, and then make it available to young people, and around and around we go. Someone else says, well, I can't get a council house in Whitby. I've been, I've been on the housing list for six years, uh, they right. say. There are indeed far too many holiday homes in Whitby. Hannah says, we are saturated by landlords buying more and more homes. It's all about profit for the few. Adrian says, it's, we just have a massive shortage of social housing in this country, and it's simple. We need to just build more. Uh, Bernard says, we are a democratic country and this is a dictator decision. It's up to all the councils to build all the houses for the residents at reasonable rents, then everybody will win. Well, let me know your thoughts on all of that. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Indy Ref, where do you stand on this? Should Scotland be an independent country? And should, by the way, we even be having another referendum on this, given that in 2014, uh, many people behind that referendum said it was once in a generation opportunity. Hmm, I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Right, let's talk about Scotland uh, independence, shall we? Alex Salmond, of course, said it was a once in a generation vote back in 2014. Uh, well, that's not a generation ago, is it? And apparently now Nicola Sturgeon has announced that she intends to campaign for a second vote. I mean, let's be honest, we all kind of saw that coming, didn't we? But what do you think to this? Is this really what the country needs, another referendum? Um, or are you sitting there saying, absolutely, yes, the ground changed when we left uh, the European Union and now is the time. James, where do you stand? Well, I've got a lot of time for the Scots. I think the Scottish Enlightenment was terrific. I think John McLean, who was imprisoned for his hostility to the First World War, was uh, a hero. Um, I've got absolutely no time for the Scottish National Party and Nicola Sturgeon. I think uh, her, she, her new quest for independence, is it that new, uh, is founded on a report unfavorably comparing the United Kingdom with many other European economies. I'm ill-prepared to accept that, given her prognostications about the Scottish economy's um, wonderfully optimistic prospects cut adrift from the English one. I think it's uh, completely utopian, and I find her government generally extremely repressive in relation to personal rights, personal intrusion, family life, and all of that. If they want a referendum, let's face it, 
There's never a good time to have a referendum. I don't think Boris is making a clever argument there that, you know, we've got all this other stuff on our plate. If they really insist on a referendum, let them have one and I will respect the result. I'm totally against uh, Scotland going away. I want the union. And I think um, really the, the, w what, what we can learn from Nicola Sturgeon is that actually she's not that keen on a, on a referendum. She's been playing it long for a very long time. She fears the result because generally things are not going her way. And her corrupt administration for the last X years, all that funny business with her husband and all this funding and, you know, people in high office, people have lost faith in her. She's lost legitimacy. And this is maybe, I hope, her final throw of the dice. Mm, Martin? Um, Sturgeon is a one-trick pony. Um, this is all she's got in her bag of tricks, particularly when Scotland isn't doing very well. She used the pandemic um, as a smokescreen to get grab hold of more devolved power, to implement COVID legislation differently in Scotland. Um, as, cool. a, as, as a way, you know, as, as, as in harder, sooner, longer, you know, more and more kind of autocratic. Um, I do, however, like a good referendum, mm. as you know. And I would like to play devil's advocate. Let's have a referendum mm. on Scottish independence where the English get to vote. And I say that because... <laughs> what, just the English? Well, I say that because there's, there's a huge amount of hostility from Scotland towards England. It almost feels like we're in a marriage with a partner that hates us. Yeah. So, so why don't we also say, well, we'll have a referendum on that. And, by the way, there'll be no alimony. There'll be no Barnet formula. There'll be no more free prescriptions. There'll be no more free education for Scots. You'll be on your own. There'll be no more pounds sterling. Good luck, on your own, off you go. Now, I, th I think that's an opinion that, that more and more English people are starting to feel. That's, that's what I hear all the time. Now, I, I'm, I am a unionist. I, I campaigned for um, the union to remain last time in 2013, way back. I got a lot of aggro for that. By God, I wasn't even aware of what a febrile atmosphere that was. It actually made Brexit look like a tea party. But I like democracy. I like it like I love oxygen. I say, let's roll the dice again. Mm. And, and, if, and if they lose, shut up forever. <laughs> really? What, shut up forever? Not, not in a few more years? Uh, Rubina, you um, were shaking your head at young Martin there. What's yeah. on your mind? Young Martin. <laughs> <laughs> not very young anymore, thank you. Right, yeah, so no, in 2014, 55% voted for an independent Scotland. And she said, undisputable democratic mandate. That's what Nicola Sturgeon said, that that's what they had. But actually, what the focus should be on is public services in Scotland. There's £1.1 billion of reduction of government funding in the recent financial review. Really and truly, the Scottish people need good public services. What they need is access to homes, education, all the things that are paramount to people living in Scotland. In a time of COVID, when we've got the Ukraine war, we've just had Brexit, we've just been talking about the cost of living, all of these things, how much money is Scotland going to spend on running a referendum? Is this really the appropriate time to start talking about a referendum at a time when children are in poverty, when families are struggling? I don't think so. I think it's Nicola Sturgeon being very selfish about her own personal mandate and putting her mandate before the people of Scotland. And I think that is what we have to talk about. And just on the union, I came to this country in 1975. My father came to this country when he was oh, a young man, um, 19, and he worked for the docks, the East End docks. And we have always believed that to be part of the union is part of our dignity, our heritage, about being British, about having Ireland and Scotland and Wales together. 
And my grandfather said to me once, when the partition of India happened in 1947, when you break up India, you break up land, pieces of land. And once you start breaking up pieces of land, you become fragmented. You become a weaker country. I don't ever want to see the United Kingdom fragmented. I don't ever want to see us being apart from each other. We all have um, differences in opinions, but at the end of the day, we are the United Kingdom. Yeah, here, here to that. Amen to that. Great to get your perspective. (laughs) Athena on Twitter says, yes, I think if Sturgeon wishes to have another referendum that could split our union, then all countries in the union should have a say because it affects us all. Athena, was that your view on the Brexit referendum? Did you sit there at that point in time and think, hang on just a second, uh, this is going to split a massive union, so everyone should have a say? Or is that view just unique to this one? Let me know your thoughts on that. Um, Many people uh, really wanting the union to remain, but say, actually, uh, if that's what they want to do, they want to have uh, a referendum, then go ahead and do it. William agrees with you. He says England should have a referendum on whether or not we want Scotland uh, to be part of the UK. Jim says, no, they should not have a referendum. You can't just keep going ad infinitum until you get an acceptable result. Uh, Jim says, if I I voted Brexit Brexit, and if the vote was to remain, I would have sighed heavily and simply have moved on. Lots of people agree with you there, though, I have to say, Martin, about um, if that's what they want to do and let the English vote. A lot of people are saying they agree with you on that one. Maybe we should have a referendum. Andy on Twitter uh, has been in touch saying a panellist on GB News has just made a wild claim about a million extra people coming to the UK each year. I, I didn't hear that. Did someone yeah, make that me, yeah. wild claim? Yeah, well, he says, he says, well, here's a fact. 573,000 uh, people, so 573,000 people migrated into the UK, 334,000 uh, left, thus net migration of 239,000 people. It's not true. Oh, well, it's, there you go, it's, Andy. It's simply out there. You, Google is your friend, Andy. Oh, well, there you go. You, Andy, you, Andy, Andy, v, there, yeah. Andy V. Martin. Uh, there you go. That's his response, Andy. He says he got it from the ONS. So I'll leave that with you two to fight it out over Twitter. Uh, right. Brian says, Michelle, I had three offers on my home and I sold it for £3,000 below the highest offer to a local family that I was promised was going to live in it. Brian, you are a good man. You go straight to heaven, you will. Right, uh, that is all we've got time for. Thank you very much to our panel for your thoughts this evening and thank you at home for yours. Have yourself a fantastic evening and I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.